This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. I, of course, am your host, Caleb Colquitt. We are glad to have you with us, as we always are, regardless of how you're with us, whether you're watching through YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch. We're happy to have you here on this Tuesday. Guys, there's a lot going on in the world. There is so much going on in the world, and it, it feels overwhelming. I get it. I mean, right now, right here in the state of Alabama, we've got so much going on. I mean, just looking outside the state in the country, we've got things like race riots going on. The coronavirus is still affecting our lives in several significant ways. Uh, <laughs> there's states legalizing pedophilia. We're having that debate now, and there's a hurricane on the way, to be honest, I'm not even sure if I'm going to be able to finish this video because if the hurricane, you know, some of that strong wind does wind up hitting from that storm, we could go off the air at any second now. So there is so much going on right now. The end of the world is upon us. The moon has turned to blood. The mountains are melting. And I mean, it really does feel like an apocalypse. But despite all of this, despite everything that is going on, there is hope. Do you know why there's hope? Because it turns out, it was announced earlier today, that Montgomery is getting a Whataburger! Yes! So, it took three years that I've been on this campaign, uh, on this, this great crusade to bring Whataburger and all of its deliciousness to the capital city. It was a hard-fought battle, but I just wanted to say to everybody, you're welcome. Because, obviously, the reason that they made this move, the reason that Whataburger Corporate decided to bring a Whataburger back to Montgomery, I know there was one here beforehand, uh, and I didn't have anything to do with that one, but this one, that, that was all me. And so, I just wanted to tell everybody that you're welcome. Um, I, I hope you appreciate it. This is really my gift to you, Montgomery and the River Region. This is going to be my legacy. Uh, you've got two wishes left, and if anyone needs me, I'll be in the lamp. So... You know, that, that's it, Montgomery. I, I, you know, it's been a good run, and I think my life is pretty much complete. I may just wrap up the show, and, and this will be my last episode, and, uh, you know, I'll see you on the flip side. But no, in all seriousness, the Whataburger announcement is really fantastic news for me. I've been doing this for a while. I actually put a petition out there, which I promoted on the show. <laughs> so this has been something that, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming for me. It's, it's been a while. And uh, I really do, uh, I'm really looking forward to eating Whataburger, and uh, this is something that is a, a very, very big deal for me. You can check this out. This is the announcement that sort of brought the news to us. This is from the Montgomery Advertiser. You can see here that uh, Montgomery Advertiser, Whataburger is to open a location in the spring. And by the way, this picture that they took is a picture of uh, basically what the store is going to look like. Now, to be completely clear, they have chosen a design for the store. This is what it's going to look like. Now, personally, just personal preference, I kind of like the other design, kind of similar to the one that's in Clanton. That's the one that I like that has kind of the teepee style thing that, that has the arch up in the middle that it almost kind of looks like the Whataburger logo, you know, that you can see right over my shoulder there. It kind of looks like the logo where it has the big orange and it just goes up in the middle. That's a really cool looking building. It's very unique. I like that better. Uh, the, the one that they have there just looks too much like a Starbucks. And I don't care for that. But you know what? I don't freaking care. 
because we're going to have Whataburgers here in Montgomery. I don't have to drive to freaking Clanton to be able to get one. So I just ask that the people of Montgomery don't screw this up. So don't let Whataburger go out of business again. We have to be able to keep it here. This was a, and if anyone is wondering or doubting that I am the sole reason that Whataburger decided to come to the river region, I actually have proof. That's right, because that's what we do here at Tactics. We do our research. We don't say anything that cannot be substantiated through other claims. So here it goes. This is a quote from the vice president of real estate at Whataburger. This is actually from that same Montgomery Advertiser uh, article. He says here, quote, We've heard so many Whataburger fans here and are excited to open our newest restaurant in Montgomery in spring 2021. Whataburger Vice President of Real Estate James Turncoat. Uh, man, that's an unfortunate name. It's, it sounds almost like Turncoat. Uh, Turncoat said in a release, We look forward to welcoming new neighbors to the Whataburger family and we'll share additional information as we get closer to opening. So no official date, just the spring. And no official location. They say that they're going to release those details later. But you saw that first part of that clip where he says that, uh, I'll show it again, just to reiterate my point. You can see here, he says, we've heard from so many Whataburger fans here. Which is basically just him saying, Caleb Cockwit on Tactics Radio, that's the reason that we're coming here is because he made such a big deal about it and he kept nagging us about it, kept tagging us on Twitter, telling us that we've got to come to the river region, and that's why, that is why we decided we've got to bring a Whataburger to Montgomery. So there you have it, Montgomery, you're welcome. There, I approved it. I mean, I don't see how you could read anything other than that Caleb Cockwood is the reason that we're coming to Montgomery out of that. <laughs> so my only question is, where is it going to be? Selfishly, I'd love for it to be on Atlanta Highway right next to Faulkner University. I think that that would get good traffic for the college students from Faulkner. But I kind of doubt that they're going to go with that because they already had a location on Atlanta Highway and that one didn't pan out so well. They also tried one in East Chase and it didn't work out in East Chase. Here's the thing. I think there actually could, a Whataburger could work out in East Chase, personally. It's just my own thoughts on it. I think that a location would totally work out in East Chase. The reason I don't think they're going to go that route is because they've already had one in East Chase and that, that building was just cursed. That building was like three or four different things in the span of about six or seven years. And so I, it's not, it's not Whataburger that was unpopular in East Chase. It was just that building just for that, that location was just a bad location inside East Chase. I think that if they put a Whataburger in the right place in East Chase, it would probably do very well. Could be wrong. But if I had to guess, they would either put it on Taylor. So not in East Chase, but somewhere along Taylor just because that's closer to sort of the Pike Road thing, or, because uh, I don't think they're going to put it downtown. I don't think there's really space for it. I don't think a Whataburger would work there. And, you know, frankly, I want to keep it here as long as possible. I don't think they're going to put it on Atlanta Highway either because of the, the reason I just stated. They already tried one on Atlanta Highway, and that one didn't pan out. If I had to guess, it would either be somewhere on Taylor or maybe on uh, the, somewhere near Chantilly. So, you know, in that Chantilly area around where the big Walmart is and the, the movie theater, the Carmike Cinema, maybe out that way, maybe, maybe Zelda Road, you know, where the Moe's and the Publix and everything is over that way, possibly. I kind of doubt Zelda Road. 
I, I, I just, wait, Zelda Road, Ann Street. I'm thinking Ann Street. Maybe Ann Street, because there's some stuff over there. Uh, I could maybe see it working out there. I don't know, though. I, I, th I think that it's definitely, if I had to guess, it's going to be Chantilly. That's where I would put it if I were building one. But, you know, that's just me. Either way, really, really excited about this. And so when they do get here, be sure to support them. By the way, one other just sort of passing note in this. Uh, there is a big, uh, it is going to be a big deal because it's also bringing approximately 125 jobs. And the fact that this is a 24-hour burger place is really good because you're going to be able to get business that there's not a lot of 24-hour options other than like Waffle House in the Montgomery region. So I think it's going to work out fine. Please, please support them when they do come here because I want to keep Whataburger here as long as I'm in the River region as well. Now, on to some actual news because that was just something fun for me and I, I hope you uh, don't mind me indulging a little bit. Uh, so in actual news, Governor Ivey, has announced that she is going to be spending roughly $10 million on tourist ads. And now, this comes from the almost $2 billion, just a little bit south of $2 billion, that was given to the state of Alabama through the CARES Act. This was the, the measure put out by the federal government to try to counteract some of the damage done by coronavirus. And so, because of that, they wound up allocating about $2 billion to the state of Alabama. Governor Ivey has already sort of earmarked and spent several different portions of it. This particular one... I, I do take some issue with, because here's the thing. You guys know I'm not Kay Ivey's biggest fan. I don't hate her, but she's a mixed bag for me most of the time, and I've been especially miffed with her, with her unconstitutional mask mandate, the unconstitutional shutdown. Uh, there's, the, there's, there's a lot of issues with me and Governor Ivey. Nobody would dispute that. But I have given her credit where credit is due, because so far she's done a pretty good job of spending this money. Uh, she, she spent it on things that made sense to me. If I were in her position, I would have done essentially the same thing that she did with this money thus far. And I don't think that should come as a surprise to anybody because if there's one thing that Governor Ivey is really, really good at, it's spending money. Uh, you know, you got your weaknesses and your strengths in life. Governor Ivey's strength is spending money. She has never seen a spending bill she didn't like. She will sign any uh, spending bill, any taxation bill that is put on her desk. She absolutely loves some big government spending, always has. Uh, I, I know that she's not quite a Democrat. I know she's not completely gone off the rails, but, you know, the, the woman likes her spending measures. She, she occasionally favors tax cuts, and I want to give her, again, I don't want to be unrealistic or I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to th hurl criticism at her that is undeserved because sometimes she will uh, be in favor of a tax cut as well, but usually she really likes taxation and she really, really likes spending. And so it makes sense that she would be pretty good at spending this money since she really, really does like spending. But this particular one, I don't think makes a whole lot of sense. Now, this is just me personally. And maybe if I were sitting here with the governor or I were sitting here with one of the governor's spokespeople, they could explain why spending $10 million on advertising for tourism right now makes sense. But there's several reasons why this one just escapes me for whatever reason. First of all, the pandemic is going on, which means that there's a, a pretty decent amount of fear of travel going around in the state of Alabama. That, to me, seems like it would be something that somehow curtails tourism and makes tourism less likely to happen, those ads less likely to be effective for us to get less bang for our buck when it comes to the ad campaigns. Beach season, beach season is pretty much over. 
Now, if we're doing tourism ads in the coming months, maybe for hunting tourism, you know, people coming down here to do whitetail deer, deer hunting, something like that. Okay, I, I could see why. But if we're just doing general tourism for the state of Alabama, most of our tourism is outdoor tourism and tourism for the beach. So with beach season pretty much wrapping up, schools getting back into session, quite frankly, doing ads for tourism right now don't make a whole lot of sense to me. At least not for the state of Alabama. If we were a state that had draw that was, was not so seasonal, maybe. But with Alabama, our tourism is so centered around one particular part of the year, I don't see a tourism ad making a ton of sense right now. Again, maybe, maybe there's somebody that could explain that better to me that knows more about this stuff, but just based on my initial overview of it, I, I don't get it. And then another thing that is really odd, and this frankly was probably just bad timing on Governor Ivey's part, the hurricanes are about to hit. Uh, we have a hurricane that is bearing down on us right now. In fact, Hurricane Sally is on its way, and like I said, the power could go out in the middle of my show, depending on how long my show goes. That's how close the hurricane is, and what happens if this hurricane, which is a Category 3 last I checked, what happens if this hurricane hits the coast, devastates it, there's really nothing to do, tourists don't really have anywhere to go down here, then we spend all that money for absolutely nothing. Now, granted, I'm sure that this plan was in place before they knew for a fact that Sally was going to hit, but it seems short-sighted just based on the recent news, and I don't fully understand exactly why Governor Ivey thought this was a good idea, in part because of that. But to, you know, to, to look at it and, and sort of take a step back from this one specific instance and just look at the general principle underlying this, to, I don't really see the point in states spending money for advertisements for tourism. I don't. I think that that should be something that is primarily done by private companies. And private companies can advertise some of our state resources or they can advertise specifically the draw to them. I think that it would be smartest to do both because if you can convince somebody that there are plenty of things to do here, you as a private business are more likely to get tourists in, which means people are more likely to go to your particular business and frequent it. I don't see the reason that government should be buying ads for its state when it comes to tourism. Companies can handle that. And remember, I am saying this is somebody that has a background in tourism. My mother, for the majority of my high school career up until this day was somebody that was in the hotel business. I worked alongside her. I also worked in other hotels that she was not associated with. I've worked in at least three. Yeah, it, it would have been three because I did work at another one, but it was only for a, a couple weeks and it was a temporary thing. And I went back to the, because they were owned by the same person. But anyway, um, I've really only worked in three hotels, at least in, in a semi-permanent capacity. And so I've been in the hotel business for a really long time. I've done virtually every job in the hotel business that you can do. I have a good buddy that's in the hotel business. He lives in Pensacola, or no, not Pensacola, uh, Panama City Beach right now. And so I'm not like super ingrained in it, but I have a good deal of familiarity when it comes to tourism and how it works in this state and how it works in the South in general. And this is something that we're plugged into. This is something that I have a little area of expertise in. And I just still do not see that there is a need for a state to advertise 
its attractions to other states in the country. I, I don't I don't get it. And I just don't like the idea of government doing that in the first place. So that may be part of the reason that I'm having this. I'd rather them do some kind of direct investment. So, for example, if we're talking about something that is going to improve the infrastructure that will make it easier for tourists, okay, I'm fine with that. If we're going to do things like that, if we're going to, for example, if, if there's a bridge that needs to be built or, or a road that needs some kind of work or we need to set up more rest areas, something like that, any, any of those things that are a direct investment that will assist our private businesses when it comes to tourism, that's a very good thing. I don't see ads as being a part of that. It, it's not something that I am like, you know, completely against because I'm a libertarian, even though I, that may be part of the reason that I'm less apt to be warmed up to it. But I, I just don't see ads as being a real integral part of that. If we're going to invest, we should invest in a very direct way that, that does benefit our citizens in a very, a very tangible way, I guess is the best way to say it. But my biggest issue in this, let's even take a step further back. So we were at this specific instance and then we broaden that out to uh, just the general principle of, of government buying ads. And now we're going all the way out and going to the big meta question, which is why is Alabama's legislator not involved in deciding where this money goes? Did they legislate their res responsibilities away? Because if so, then we should be upset at the legislatures for doing that. And I think that, frankly, that's probably the most likely scenario or is it that Governor Ivey has just seen fit to make herself the sole, uh, I hate to use this word because it sounds more dramatic than it is, but dictator, she is dictating where this money goes. I'm not saying that Governor Ivey is a dictator in every other sense of the word. Even though these past few months have, lended, have, have trended towards that, but nonetheless, when it comes to how this money is spent, she has been the, the sole person making these decisions, I guess her and her executive staff, which would fall under her branch of government anyway. So Governor Ivey has been the one deciding all of these things. Why is the Congress not involved in this? Why do we not have lawmakers showing up for a special, special session, which is totally reasonable at this point, that our House and our Senate come together and decide how to spend this money? They should be the ones deciding this stuff, not Governor Ivey. Like I said, so far, with the exception of maybe this one $10 million, at least out of the spending that I've seen thus far, I've agreed with pretty much everything Kay Ivey's done and, and thought she's done a good job. Doesn't matter, the process still should be in place, period. The legislature should be involved in this process. This is not something that the governor should be able to do unilaterally. And so even though I think Governor Ivey's done a pretty darn good job with the spending on this stuff so far, I still want the legislature involved. How you do this does matter. Now, would the legislature have spent more money on ads, less money? I don't know. But I still think they should be involved in the process regardless of the outcome. Even if the outcome was something that looked less like what I wanted, I still think that our lawmakers should have a say in this. It should not just be Governor Ivey. So, is this story an outrage? Is this something that I'm going to be bleeding from the eyes and flying off the handle? No, I don't think it's that big a deal. I'm not, you know, completely against it or anything. I don't think that this is absurd or that this is a massive abuse of power by Kay Ivey because the results have not been something that is necessarily all that horrendous. But it still irks me 
and I still think that our lawmakers should have something to say about this, it, it, it very, very much bothers me how much power Governor Ivey has just decided that she has throughout the past six months of life in Alabama. She has essentially just decided that she can do more or less whatever she wants when it comes to this stuff. And that is one thing that is really bothersome. And it also sets a very, very bad legal precedent that I wish somebody would do something about. Now, on to some other news, because this is also really important. And I know it's something that people have been asking me about. I haven't really said anything about it. And I've thought about it and even prayed about it and, and contemplated this. Here's the deal. When it comes to Cuties, the movie that is now on Netflix that is drawing all kinds of criticism, rightfully so, because it has 11-year-old girls, actors and actresses that are actually 11. They're not just playing 11-year-old characters. They are actually 11-year-old actresses playing girls that are dressed and dancing in a, a very sexually provocative way. I'm sure that you know about this story. I've had a lot of people ask my opinion on it, what my take is, that kind of thing, and that's understandable. I mean, this is a Christian show. This is something that specifically relates to politics and morals, and so I get it. The reason I haven't commented on it so far is because I haven't seen it. And I've been debating back and forth in my own head, is it okay for me to do commentary on this thing even though I haven't seen it? And, of course, the logical answer to that that I would normally do is anything that I don't want to comment on until I've seen it, I just watch it. That's my go-to answer. It's the reason that we play so many clips. It's the reason we play so many clips and, and try to play them, you know, longer than most shows do to add the full context because I want you to have the same reaction. Well, I don't want to react to something unless I've actually seen it. And this movie is the same way. My initial instinct is to not comment on anything that I have not watched myself, but I cannot bring myself to watch this movie for a couple of reasons. First of all, I canceled my Netflix subscription a long time ago. <laughs> uh, the whole gay Jesus thing and trying to boycott the state of Georgia over their heartbeat bill, like that, there was too much already going on with Netflix for me to hang on to it. Now, do I think you're a horrible person if you haven't canceled your Netflix so far? No, not necessarily. But I just looked at the content that was being put out, the kind of company that they were, the values that they stood for, and I was like, I can't continue to give my money to these people. That was my choice. I don't begrudge you if you made a different one. So that's the first reason that I haven't watched it, is I don't want to pay this company specifically so that I can watch this documentary that I believe it would be the only reason that I bought it. And so I don't want to do that. I guess I could borrow somebody else's Netflix and watch it, but I don't really you know, favor doing that either, asking someone, hey, can I borrow your Netflix account so I can watch the movie with, you know, half-naked 11-year-old girls humping the floor? That's not a conversation I want to have with another person, and I think you can understand why. But even if that were not the case, even if I still had a Netflix account, I still had access to it, all of that, I still couldn't watch it because I've seen some really gruesome stuff in my time as a news person. I mean, I have watched terrorists behead a person with a knife and not like a, a clean cut like you see in a guillotine in a movie. I mean like a rusty jagged knife with the person squirming and, and seizuring and, and all of this stuff. I've seen some brutal, awful stuff. But I have to tell you, when it comes to disturbing, little kids are, are something that just kind of gets to me. And, and the idea that somebody would be going out there and exploiting these little girls I don't think I can subject myself to watching that. I just can't. I, I, you know, there are people out there that have, 
And they they said that, you know, it made them cringe and they didn't want to watch it, but they felt like they had to to be able to comment on it. And so I, I totally respect the fact that they were able to do that if they were doing it specifically to offer a commentary. I know that uh, I believe it was was Crowder, Stephen Crowder with The Blaze, that was saying that he watched it and he was looking over his shoulder the whole time thinking, is the FBI going to bust in here and, and arrest me for this? Because he, he said it's basically child porn and it was really, really hard for him to watch. He had to cut it off several times. And so there are people that have watched through this and have offered commentary on it. Uh, I I can't really, to, to some degree, I feel like I can't really offer a full commentary on it just because I was not able to watch it. But the newest piece of news in this particular story is that the director, uh, my, my, uh, Mona, Maya Mona Ducor, I believe is the way to pronounce her name. It's French and there's like 19 unnecessary vowels in it. So, you know, I mean, you've seen LSU fans, you know, if it's a French word, it has 19 unnecessary letters in it that are silent or combined with another one to make a completely different sound. Nothing in the French language makes sense. And I'm saying that as an English-speaking person. Nothing in our language makes sense either. But with them, they just have a whole bunch of unnecessary uh, letters and vowels in their words for no reason. Anyway, so she's the director, and she actually has said that it was intended as a commentary on the hypersexualization of really young people and that it should not be viewed as trying to create some kind of softcore child porn or whatever, that it was specifically intended to act as a foil, as a commentary to that, and try to say that actually us over-sexualizing our children is a bad thing. There's a couple reasons why I still think that, that, I, that I want to give on this, and I watched Ben Shapiro's review of it, again, specifically because I didn't want to, and I've, I've seen several other people comment on it, and they kind of... They don't, don't necessarily give all the nuance that Ben Shapiro does, because Ben Shapiro does a, a great job of breaking down all of this. But he does say that there, it is completely legitimate, based on the content that he saw, that it was an attempt at commentary. In other words, that the director may be 100% telling the truth, that they really did intend to have people view this specifically as a commentary on hypersexualization of little girls and that over-sexualizing our culture bleeds over into those that are not supposed to be sexualized and it has an effect on them because there are all these little girls that, for example, are, you know, they don't really understand sex and they don't understand how sexual and provocative the dances they are doing are. They're just watching adults and they're like, okay, they're doing this, and this is getting them all their likes, and so it's also partially a commentary on social media. Therefore, we should imitate them and do the kinds of things that they are doing because that is what is getting them likes. And even though adult people that have the ability to do this, even though it's an immoral decision, of course, people like Beyonce and whatever the, the girl is that did that video, uh, Cardi B, Cardi B, uh, the, the one that did the recent video that's got kind of similar imagery with all adult women, that there is a bleed-over effect that young girls see these people, uh, see people that to, in their mind are role models and people that they want to be like, that society loves them and thinks they're fabulous, and so they want a similar attention. They will do things for attention, not even realizing how sexual they are being or how provocative it is or how dangerous it is to evoke that kind of imagery in people that would be predatory towards them. 
And so I don't want to say through no fault of their own, but, you know, somewhat through no fault of their own because they are minors, their brains aren't fully developed and they haven't developed the judgment to be able to filter these kinds of things out. Um, partially through this, the message of the film is sort of suggesting that these girls are kind of caught up in this toxic culture where they're just doing things that they think will get them likes, which leads them to do things that they should not be doing. Uh, that's not really how Netflix build the film. Not only with the original poster, with the, the very sexualized uh, view of that, but also in the, the, the blurb that they wrote about the movie talking about how it's basically a, a journey with a young girl who's living in a conservative family. By the way, I love how they put conservative. They don't mention that the family is conservative because they're Muslim. They're a, a Muslim family living in France. Uh, but they, they refer to it as a conservative, and so they, they basically talk about it like, oh, these poor repressed girls are just living in a, a super conservative uh, home where the, you know, the parents are ogres and uh, they don't let them do anything. And so the girls just break free and express themselves. That's how Netflix build the film. But the film itself, at least according to Ben Shapiro's commentary on it, it really doesn't take that direction. I mean, yes, all of that happens, but the message sort of at the end of it is that they realized that they had made a mistake, that they were sexualizing themselves and didn't realize that what they were doing was kind of horrifying and the adults sort of rush in and try to stop them. And so based on what he was saying, the message of the film is slightly different than the way it was billed and marketed by Netflix. So that means that we can look at this and say that there are several things that, that we can look at that can all be true at the same time. First, Netflix specifically did try to market this as, hey, here's these super hypersexualized young girls here for your viewing pleasure, even though that wasn't the way that the movie originally intended it. The second thing is that just because this thing, this thing may actually really be a legitimate attempt at commentary, that the director really was trying to send out a message that hypersexualizing children is a bad thing. But here's the third thing, and this is the thing that really makes all the difference in this story. The third thing is that just because it is a commentary does not mean that it is not in and of itself by its own nature and what it shows incredibly provocative and exploitive of these little girls. So good intention is not a license to do whatever you want. There are lots of things that were well-intended that yielded bad results, and that the good-intended people, though they had no malicious intent in their heart, should have known better. I mean, there is a, a myriad of th examples of this throughout history. For example, Mao Zedong and his Great Leap Forward. Now, I think that Mao Zedong was a horrible tyrant that was primarily concerned with his own power, but you could at least make the case, even though I think that it's wrong, you could make the case that he was well-intended in his Great Leap Forward. Now, that wound up systematically starving millions of people, to which, after about two years of trying it, he finally goes, yeah, maybe that wasn't such a great idea. But the point is, the good intent of Mao Zedong did not negate the fact that people were starving to death under his policies. And this is true of a lot of people in the political realm when you're talking about socialist movements. They really do intend good things. They really do think that they're helping people. They really do think that people will be better off if their policies are intended. Doesn't matter. 
no amount of good intention will negate the fact that people can die as a result of socialism, and 100,000 of them did in the 20th century. Now, there were some people that were more sinister than others that implemented socialist policies, but my point in all of this is, just because the director of this film may have very much legitimately intended for this to be viewed as a commentary and as a repudiation of sexualization of kids, showing the sexualization of kids in such a obvious and provocative way does not mean that those little girls in the movie were not exploited in the process of doing this. The Hollywood Reporter actually gives this quote, and this is her defending the movie that she made here. So this is, again, the director of Cuties, uh, Maimoa Decor. And she says this, quote, It's bold, it's feminist, but it's important and necessary to create debate and find solutions. For me as an artist, for politicians and parents, it's a real issue, the director argued. Uh, Decor also defended Cuties for allowing black and brown people to see themselves on the big screen. It's important to see someone like you on screen and to grow up with a lot of possibilities. So, of course, diversity and inclusion have to be keys to progress our cinema, she argued. So, a lot to unpack there, but a couple of things. First of all, this should put to bed any of the rebuttals from the left, saying, oh, these are a bunch of conservative prudes, they're bringing this out, but, you know, conservatives, you would actually like this movie because it's a commentary on hypersexualization, and this is actually a very conservative movie. Uh, did you see anything in that statement that even somewhat was reminiscent of conservatism? I didn't see any. It seemed to me like she was trying to hit all of the appropriate liberal buzzwords of the day. This is somebody that is very far on the left. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that she's wrong just because she is on the left. But I am saying that the idea that, because I've seen so many people arguing about this film... And one of the big rebuttals is, no, 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 she's actually a conservative. She actually believes in conservative principles, and this is really a conservative movie. And if, guys, you just judge the book based on its, cover, on its cover. If you actually watch the movie, you would like it. Yeah, that's going to be a harder sell, considering that she kind of revealed herself to be very much in the whole affirmative action camp and uh, is very concerned about it being feminist. Another thing is, she the first words out of her mouth when asking about this is she said, well, it's bold. Yeah, well, lots of things are bold. Bold is not necessarily good. Bold can be good. We are commanded in the scripture to be bold when professing the gospel of Christ. That is certainly an example of how boldness can be good. I pray for boldness on a very regular basis because it's something that sometimes I struggle with. I know that's hard to believe, me being a radio host, but really it is. It's something that I have to pray for. Just because something is bold does not mean that it is right. It has to be coupled with that which is good. Lots of people have done very bold things, and it wound up being really terrible. For example, if you're a, and we're going to get into this in a second, unfortunately, like with California's new law, if you are a 40, 50-year-old man, and you start trying to romance a 14-year-old, that's bold. Not a good thing. And so, you know, this whole thing, well, it's it's very bold. It's per, yeah, that, That's not a point in its favor. You're not really addressing the core issue that everybody is talking about here. The, the second part of this is, I think she is correct in the sense that it is feminist. When she says that it's a feminist movie, I don't disagree with that. I think that she's 100% right on that, because if you're talking about, now, classical feminism, 
No, it's the exact opposite of classical feminism. But if we're talking about fourth wave feminism, the modern idea of feminism, I think that she's actually 100% on the mark when she says that it is feminist. Because remember that the only virtue in modern day feminism is that both people give their consent and basically it's okay to act like a whore as long as it's, you know, something that you're choosing and you're in control of. As long as it's not the man that's getting something out of it, as long as it's not the man that is in control of this, this is one of the craziest things that I've ever seen. Somehow men convince feminists that it was empowering to have lots of sex with men without any kind of commitment. I never will understand how they made that sales pitch. I, I don't get it. But somehow that is what modern feminists believe, and, and there were you know men in the, on the left that convince women that somehow this is a very healthy, empowering thing for them to do. I'll never understand that to my dying day. But if that is at the core of your belief system, you could see how a bunch of 11-year-olds basically imitating sex on a stage for the enjoyment of middle-aged men in the audience would be a very empowering thing. If that is your virtue, if doing whatever gets you attention and makes you feel as though you are, you know, the center of everybody's focus... If that is something that is empowering to you, if you think of that as empowering, then of course this movie would be feminist because it puts that front and center and it says, not only should women do this, they should do it at the youngest possible age, even before they are physically, emotionally, or mentally ready to engage in said activities that they are sort of emulating here. Uh, and then the, the other part of this is that when you're looking at this, the diversity statement, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because that's just sort of an afterthought, but when you were talking about how it's really important for black and brown people to see themselves on screen and to know that they can do anything, I don't have a problem with black actors and actresses, black characters, no issue with that whatsoever. Some of my favorite movies feature that. Uh, some of my favorite characters in movies happened to be a, a black person, uh, Morgan Freeman, I, I would kill to have that man's voice. Uh, you know, I, I could go down the list, but I don't feel like, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to subject myself to trying to prove that I really believe that. But nonetheless, you know, uh, just for the sake of time, we're going to skip over all of that. If you can only see yourself, in a character in a story that happens to share your race, then you're a racist. I know that that's not comfortable. I know that that's not something that a lot of people are going to want to hear. But if you are only able to relate to or see yourself in the shoes of or aspire to be the person in a story that shares your race and you just can't see it with somebody outside of your race, then you're the racist. Also, it's really weird for her to act as though this is like the very first time that there's ever been a black person in a movie. Like, it's been going on for a really, really long time. This is not a recent development. If anything, if you look at the demographics, minorities, black people, Hispanics, are actually overrepresented in the movie industry, at least on screen. And so statistically, they actually have an overrepresentation. Now, I don't care. I'm fine with them being overrepresented. And for the towns that these movies are made in, you know, your Hollywood, your L.A.'s, it's probably a more accurate representation of the population as a whole than it is the American population because, of course, other areas in the country are just simply not as diverse because they, you know, they're not all large urban centers 
on the West Coast, which is closer to other countries than the heartland, for example. And so that's perfectly okay. I don't have a problem with that, but I am a little annoyed by the, the idea, and, and this is something that the Oscars recently did, changing their parameters for, you know, you have to have a quota of a certain amount of people to be able to be considered for Best Picture, for example. I don't understand how they're acting as though this is some kind of thing that is still an issue. That, you know, all of a sudden we just now have started having black people in movies. No, that's, that's been going on for freaking ever. And if you are incapable of seeing yourself in the role of somebody that doesn't share your race, legitimately, you may be a racist because of that. I mean, there's lots of, of fantastic black characters in comic books that I really like, really relate to. Um, Luke Cage, for example. I really love Luke Cage. Out of all the Green Lanterns, the one that I relate to the most, the one that I like the most, the one that I think is the most heroic out of all of them, is Jon Stewart, who's a black guy and a former Marine. That guy kicks butt, and he's by far my favorite Green Lantern. It's not even close. Hal Jordan is a bore fest. <laughs> you see, that's the thing. There's a, there's a white Green Lantern and a black Green Lantern. I see a lot more of myself in and can relate more to the black Green Lantern because of his choices and the person he is, not because of the color of his skin. I didn't automatically gravitate to or relate to Hal Jordan just because he happens to be the white Green Lantern. I don't understand why people automatically think that that is the case. But to the greater point, sometimes satire really makes a point better than you could make through some kind of explanation. And the Babylon Bee does a fantastic job of this, and they have done so again. If you want a perfect illustration of why, even if this movie actually was a legitimate commentary, if it really was trying to say, look guys, hypersexualization of these little kids is bad, the Babylon Bee puts on display why that argument, even if it's correct, still does not excuse what cuties did. So you can check out this headline from the Babylon Bee. So Netflix movie murders puppies to teach that murdering puppies is bad. Uh, and the graphics they put together, their graphics department is fantastic. So you can see the little blurb about the movie in this provocative film. The director just literally murders puppies to teach you that murdering puppies is bad. Powerful. And uh, it's one of those jokes that you do laugh at, but you kind of feel bad at laughing at because you're thinking about, ah, I mean, if that were real. The point that this satire is making, and yes, it is funny and we laugh at it, and, and should, it's a really good joke. The point that the satire is making, though, is if anybody saw that on Netflix, they would immediately go, well, I don't really care if it's a commentary on how bad it is to kill puppies is or not. It's not right for them to do it in the movie. Them trying to offer a commentary on what it should or shouldn't be doesn't justify the evil action that they take in the movie. That's the point here. A very provocative film, for example, that I'm a big fan of and literally promoted for free on my show, I might add. Which, by the way, I'm also doing for Whataburger, so Whataburger, you know, I better be getting some free burgers out of this when you do come to town. But anyway, uh, when it came to the movie Unplanned, Unplanned, that the movie about abortion that follows the story of Abby Johnson, if you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it, but it is pretty raunchy. It's rated R, and rated R for a reason. A lot of conservatives had a problem with the rated R rating. Frankly, I thought it was appropriate. And that was a controversial opinion for me in conservative circles, but I said, look, guys, there's some scenes in there that I would not want somebody under the age of 17 watching. 
I think it's an important film. I think, frankly, you should take your teenagers to go see it, even despite the fact that parts of it are very graphic, but it displays what an abortion is. It shows you what it is, and it does spare the audience in some parts of showing some of the, the gruesome nature of it, but there are several points in that movie that it is sickening, it will turn your stomach, and it's because it is a commentary on the evil that is abortion. Here's the difference, though. They didn't perform an abortion on screen to illustrate why that is bad. The difference in this film with Cuties is they actually engaged in sexual exploitation and making the girls do provocative things in order to illustrate this. That's why it's wrong. Just having it on film to depict that is wrong in the case of Cuties. They only depicted it but didn't actually do it when it came to the movie about abortion. That's a completely different thing. They actually engaged in the sexual exploitation of these young actresses in order to make this film. That's the difference. Because when you have a cameraman, or camerawoman, I don't know, but either way, it still wasn't right to do. When you have a grown cameraman taking a camera and having to zoom in on the crotch of an 11-year-old, which does happen in this movie, you have way crossed the line. You have gone so far past the line, the line is a dot to you at that point. Could they have done essentially exactly the same thing and shown how provocative that was without actually showing the footage on film itself? Sure. They could have had a picture of the little girl taking a picture of that with her cell phone, which is what that scene is depicting, but not actually show, and, and, and I know that this is disgusting and it's given me the willies just having to say this and think about it, but without having to show that taking place, without having to show the picture that she sent of, you know, her parts, and granted, there was underwear over it, but still, this is not something that's okay to, to show, obviously. Even if it, you know, you do have underwear on on top of it. All they would have had to do is show her, like, basically from, from the neck up and positioning the phone, clicking it, and talking about it. You don't have to show the actual thing on film. And that's what makes this so completely different, and that's the reason that this argument of, well, it's just a commentary, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. They could have conveyed how wrong what they were doing is without actually showing them, showing off their bodies, dancing in these provocative ways, taking pictures of themselves, uh, the, the partial nudity parts of it. They could have done all of this without having to actually put that stuff on film. You don't have to do that to convey what was going on here. And so, frankly, it irritates me. And I hate even having to talk about this. I hate that we have gotten to a point in this world where I'm actually having to explain to a, probably a minority, but a portion of the population that showing this kind of stuff is not okay. The fact that we are here and having to have this conversation should be enough to enrage you. And I'm not somebody that tells you to give in to rage or to, you know, just be mad about it, not do anything about it. The fact that we are having to have this conversation irritates me to no end. I, I don't understand how we have gotten to this point in our society. Well, I say that. That's not, that's not entirely 100% true. I do understand it to a degree. I do understand it in the sense that the reason that we are here, the reason that we have reached this point, 
is because our society has completely neglected and forgotten God, and that is absolutely true. So, kind of along these same lines, not exactly the same, but sort of a, a tangent of the same idea, the same line of thinking, Facebook is now fact-checking memes, and I know you're going to be like, well, Caleb, what the heck does this have to do with anything that we're talking about here? Well, it's because of what they fact-checked it on and exactly the way that they were fact-checking it. So um, I do want you to uh, check this out. This was the, and it was actually on my page. Now, this is not the best put-together meme. It's actually like cut off on the sides or whatever, but I reposted the meme because a friend shared it, and I thought it was funny. It gave me a little chuckle. Um, and I don't think that it was intending, it was like not really going for accuracy considering it's just a meme and a joke, but here's the meme that came out here and you can see it says, California guys, I have a great idea. Let's reduce the penalties for child rape and basically legalize pedophilia in the state. And then it underneath it has the caption God and it has a, a bridge in California. That's not the golden gate bridge. It's a different bridge in California, but a bridge in California and you can see the wildfires uh, in the background and, and the orange sky and everything. And it looks like something in some kind of post-apocalyptic fantasy world. And it does that for a reason, because that's kind of what California looks like right now, to be perfectly honest. And so that's what's going on here is that they put this meme out and then Facebook fact checked the meme of all things. It was a joke. It was going for exaggeration. It was going to be funny, but Facebook still fact-checked it. And the way that they fact-checked it was also pretty hilarious. Now, Lead Stories is the independent fact-checker that they put on there, and I love how they label it the independent fact-checker. Lead Stories is not a right-leaning organization. They're not even centered. They're definitely on the left. But they're the ones that checked it, and to be fair... They did label it as partially true. They didn't say that there was no truth to it. They didn't say it was complete fake news and made up. They said, okay, it's partially true. There's, there's aspects of what it's saying that are correct. But it turns out the fact checker actually wasn't fact checking that meme. It was fact checking a completely different meme that was kind of speaking on the same topic. And so a lot of the commentary when I went to the link and, and actually looked at the fact checker, turns out a whole lot of the stuff that they were saying were wrong about the meme the meme never claimed because it was fact-checking a completely different meme that claimed something else. It claimed that uh, pedophilia is essentially legal in the state of California now, that there are no penalties for it and it's not illegal. This meme didn't claim that. The one that it fact-checked did. And so a lot of the rebuttal from the fact-checker on this meme that I posted wasn't even relevant because the meme never claimed that stuff. And they said basically legalized, which me, which implies that it's technically illegal, but it basically, or in other words, it, it made sort of a de facto legalization. So I'm going to dig into this fact checker story to kind of illustrate this. So let's go ahead and look at, um, let's look at this. This is from Lead Stories, the independent fact checker. So you'll see there the highlighted part. The bill is intended to protect LGBTQ plus minors from discriminatory laws, not to be pro-pedophilia, and it only applies to the people who are convicted, so it doesn't make things legal that were legal before. Again, this is kind of trying to catch somebody on a technicality because it's saying, well, it was legal before and it's still illegal now. All they did was reduce the penalty and give the judges some more leeway on that. Okay, well, that's technically true, but the spirit of what the meme was trying to convey is still 100% intact. And so this is where they kind of make a mistake there. And then underneath, the new laws allows for judges to use their discretion to place people on the sex offender registry 
if they are convicted of having unforced oral or anal sex with a minor 14 to 17. All right, that ought to scare the mess out of you. I don't know where you, who you are. And then, uh, and are within the 10-year age range. Judges previously only had this discretion if the unforced sex act was penal or vaginal. That doesn't exactly fill me with confidence. What they're saying there is that the judge now has the ability to, if a 24-year-old, for example, because that would be within the 10-year age range, if a 24-year-old has sex with a 14-year-old and the sex act is not forced, whatever that means, because now we're in a whole other, you know, completely different legalese, because uh, there should be no such thing as forced or unforced. There is either rape or not rape. That's it. And if you're having sex with a minor, that's rape. Period. End of discussion. No exceptions. If you are having sex with someone who has not reached the age of majority, the age of consent, then you are raping that person. Doesn't matter if they agreed with it. Doesn't matter if they initiated it and they wanted it and they begged you to do that. It's still rape. And this is the thing that they are missing here. Because this is a, a common, common issue with leftism. You'll notice at the very beginning of that, and we actually alluded to this a little bit in what we were just talking about, they said, well, the intent was not to be pro-pedophilia. The intent was to end discrimination against gay minors. Well, first of all, the gay minors are not being discriminated against, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay, intent and effect are two completely different things. Like I just gave the example with Mao Zedong, somebody that was, you know, may have had good intentions, but still systematically starved two million people. It's still a thing that happened. So the problem with leftism is they constantly, they are incapable seemingly of separating what something was intended to do and what it actually did. For example, Lyndon Baines Johnson and the Great Society all the affirmative action things, all of the welfare programs. Did it end poverty? No. We're here 50 years later, about the same rates of poverty. All that money, all the effort, all the bureaucracy that was added to the federal government, here we are, decades later, still poor people. But see, it made them feel good, and the intention was to end poverty, ergo it was a good policy. We see this very commonly with other policies uh, when it comes to, for example, gun control. Well, every statistic known to man shows that gun control does not have an effect on gun crime. It does not lessen the amount of people that are killed by guns through malicious intent every year. You, you don't have an increase or a decrease in gun homicides. The overall homicide rate is unaffected. So even if people don't have guns, they use some kind of other weapon to kill people if they have that intention to kill and another thing, too, when it comes to protecting women, the number one factor, the number one difference in a rape that is attempted and a rape that is completed, in other words, they actually are able to complete the rape with the woman, the number one factor is, is she armed or is she not armed? That takes it from a 2% chance if she's completely unarmed, has nothing on her, that takes it from a, a, a almost a 50% chance of that rape being completed and the man being able to sexually violate her, to a 2% chance of it being completed if she has a firearm on her. But that doesn't matter because it feels wrong to a leftist to allow people to just have guns. And so because it feels wrong, they go with their feelings as opposed to what is actually effective, what actually does some kind of good. And this is the reason that they can look at stuff like this 
that they can look at this bill and say, yeah, but the intention was good. Yeah, but it still basically legalized pedophilia, and I care a lot more about the effect than I do the intention. That's what I care about. And that's a difference between the right and the left in general. It's not wrong for the fact checkers to point out that it is still technically illegal. Again, this particular meme never claimed that it was now legalized completely. It said it's basically legal. In other words, saying that, you know, it's still technically against the law, but, you know, you can do it and, and you don't really face a penalty. But it's okay to point out that on a technicality, it's not 100% right. That's not something that I begrudge the fact checker on. But here's the thing. A lack of enforcement or a lack or a disproportional punishment for the crime, that leads to de facto legality. So let's say, for example, the penalty were mur for murder were a $20 fine. Okay, well, murder's still technically illegal, but there's an awful lot of people like, mm, $20 to be able to off somebody? Yeah, I'll take that. Be a really terrible evil person. But the point is, if that were the punishment for that, there would be some people like, yeah, it's worth $20 to get that person out of my life. I want that person dead, you know, you know, for whatever reason, whatever their motivation may be, they'd say, yeah, worth it. And so, yeah, it wouldn't technically be legal, but it would totally be legal. That, that's the issue that is being dealt with here. Nobody is claiming that, according to the state of Alabama, or sorry, the state of California, that this is now technically a legal action. What they are saying is that if you decriminalize it to the point that there's not really a severe enough punishment for this, then you're going to have people just going ahead and doing it anyway and saying, you know what, it's worth it to be able to get what I want. It's worth, you know, dealing with the legal problems. That's the kind of issue that we're really dealing with here. And so the they're not wrong to point out that this meme gets it, you know, at least suggest that it's technically not illegal. But getting them on a technicality is not really the spirit of the meme anyway, and that's not really the important issue underlying meme aside, what the real issue underlying all of this is. And by the way, this is from that same story. Just going a little further down, this is a, a quote from one of the lawmakers. The bill was introduced to, quote, indiscrimination against young people engaged in voluntary sexual activity by allowing the judge to have discretion to sentence a person to be entered on the sex offenders registry. Kate Stewart, Senator Scott Weiner's spokesperson, told Lead Stories. Weiner sponsored the bill. I. Weiner sponsored the bill along with Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and the organization Equality California. We don't want to criminalize teens or LGBTQ teens if sex is consensual and with the appropriate age range. We are introducing, uh, we are introducing pantry uh, uh, parity on all types uh, to be created equally. I'm sorry, that was my screen was was acting weird, but anyway. So I guess the liberals really do think that you're that stupid. That as long as they're saying, well, it's supposed to end some kind of discrimination, it's going to be about equality. Yeah, but you're still giving license for pedophiles to do it with young people as long as the young person says that it's okay. You're still basically saying that there's nothing wrong with that, that we're, we're going to let the judge decide as to whether or not that's something that you should actually wind up on the sex offenders list so that that person can go out and molest and, and rape another person without the people in the, the neighborhood even knowing about it. That's what you're saying there. 
But if they couch it in these terms, well, it's, well, it's supposed to end discrimination. They think that people are dumb enough to not see what they're actually doing. Well, I could say a whole bunch of things are about ending discrimination, even though this has nothing to do with that. I don't care if they're gay or straight. If they have sex with a minor, it's rape. And they should go to prison, and they should be put on the list. End of story. And another thing, too, they try to say, well, it's voluntary sex. If the person can't give consent, it's not voluntary. Again, like I said before, doesn't matter if they ask you, they initiate the whole thing. You have sex with a minor, it's rape. Period. End of discussion. No exceptions. The left has this instinct to constantly decriminalize things. And on this, I mean, on most things I don't understand why, but on this one I really don't understand why. But this is something that has been romanticized for a while, especially in the gay community. You may remember, I think it was about two years ago at the Oscars, one of the films that was up for Best Picture of the Year was Say My Name, which is a film about an adult man having a sexual relationship with a minor. And not only was this acceptable by the left, they freaking nominated it for Picture of the Year. So don't tell me that this is something that is coming out of left field or, oh, we're not trying to decriminalize it. This is not something that is pro-pedophilia, as the, the, the writers there at Lead Story said. Well, if it's something that benefits pedophiles, then it absolutely is. And the whole thing about discrimination, again, I don't care if they're gay or straight. doesn't matter to me. They should face the same penalty regardless of, of you know, the sexual preference of the person. doesn't matter to me. Completely immaterial. But I don't know why they, they like feel bad for a 20-year-old a, a or a 21-year-old man that, that rapes an underage boy. I don't understand why the sympathy factor there. If it were a, a boy and a girl, that sympathy wouldn't be there. And I don't understand why trying to decriminalize it this way, it just it does not make any sense. But it wouldn't affect the victim anyway. The only thing that these laws do are affect the violator, the person that is doing the rape. You're not punishing the kid. So I don't understand their logic of, well, we're trying to not discriminate against gay kids. Yeah, well, the one that's a kid that's a minor, he's not going to face any penalty for that anyway. He's the victim. And so none of their logic makes any sense at all. And one last point on this. There is no such thing as consensual sex with a minor, but this is the logical outgrowth of the leftist ideology that the only thing that matters is consent. That no matter who you are, what age you are, the only thing that matters in sex is consent. When they tried to decouple sex from marriage, they had to draw the line somewhere, and the only line that they could think of to draw was at consent. But now they're trying to take that away because they're saying, well, you can consent younger than you actually used to be able to, that even under the age of consent that you should be allowed to do that. They've tried to remove all morality away from the, the realm of sex, and this is the logical outcome of that. That as long as you're okay with it, that as long as two people are all right with it, that, you know, basically anything goes. There is no such thing as an appropriate age, to quote the senator, for a minor to have sex. Like, again, none of the math makes sense here. If you're a 15-year-old, and you're having, and, and there's a person that is raping you that's 25, why is it okay for the 25-year-old to do it, but not okay for the 35 or the 45-year-old to do it? Why is there a difference there? Why the 10 age range? That doesn't make any sense. 
I don't understand the rationale here. If it's wrong for a 25-year-old to do it, it would also be wrong for a 35-year-old to do it and vice versa. Age does not change the morality, or in this case, the legality, of what we're discussing here. But this whole thing is, has been, like I said, romanticizing the gay community for years, and I think that that's really the reason that this is going on. But going back to the overall thing where we started with the whole fact-check thing, how many people actually read these fact-checks? Honest question, how many people do you think actually read these fact-checks that go through them and look at them and read the nuance and, and tell that the fact-check is, is BS and it's not even correcting the meme that it's supposed to be fact-checking, that it's actually trying to fact-check a completely different meme that popped up somewhere else on Facebook? I'm guessing it's really, really low. What Facebook is hoping happens here is that people are scrolling through their newsfeed who don't know any better, they see a headline, or they see a meme and they go, huh, well that's really, really bad. Oh wait, there's a fact check on this? Okay, it must not be true. Because that's the maximum amount of cerebral power that the average person puts into reading their newsfeed on Facebook. And so all they're trying to do is things that make their side look bad, they slap a fact check on it, and then the person reads it and assumes, oh, it's just completely made up, it's not real. Facebook is counting on that. They are counting on the average person just going through their newsfeed and, and just dismissing anything that has the fact check logo on it. Because, let's be honest, the average person is just not going to spend enough time to research this kind of stuff like I do and actually dig into it. But just as a general rule, fact check aside, it's a bad idea to get your, your news from memes. That is a bad overall policy to have. As a general rule, just don't, don't get your news from memes. It's not a good look. It doesn't help you. I'm, I'm just telling you this for your own good, and, and I've, I've tried to make sure that I don't fall into this trap either. Don't get your news from memes. If you do see a news story, check with an actual news site, check with an actual source that you trust, or even one that you don't trust just to get some of the facts and then check another one that disagrees with it. That's fine too. But don't just get your news from memes. I can't tell you the number of people, conservative and liberal, that believe things that are completely untrue, not even close to true, but they believe it because they saw it on a meme somewhere. And I know because I know the meme that they're talking about when they reference it. I'm like, no, that, that didn't happen. So, I don't like the idea of Facebook trying to be the arbiters of truth and fact-checking memes. In fact, I think that this alone would mean that they are no longer a social media platform. They're actually a news publisher. But even that aside, it's still a bad idea on a personal level for you to get your news from memes. It's just not a good look. Don't do it. I'm telling you that right now. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, this one's going to be brought to you by Joe Biden. That's right, the man that is running on the Democrat ticket himself, Joe Biden. He called Trump a climate arsonist, which. I found hilarious on a number of levels, but we'll just go ahead and dive right into this one. Check out this clip of Joe Biden speaking the other day. Floods and droughts across the Midwest. The fury of climate change everywhere. All this year and right now. Donald Trump's climate denial may not have caused these fires, 
and record floods and record hurricanes. But if he gets a second term, these hellish events will continue to become more common, more devastating, and more deadly. Wildfires are burning the suburbs in the West. Floods are wiping out suburban neighborhoods in the Midwest. Hurricanes are imperiling suburban life along our coast. If we have four more years of Trump's climate denial, how many suburbs will be burned in wildfires? How many suburban neighborhoods will have been flooded out? How many suburbs will have been blown away in superstorms? If you give a climate arsonist four more years in the White House, why would anyone be surprised if we have more America blaze? If you give a climate... Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I messed that up. Sorry, this same clip. Floods and droughts across the Midwest. The fury of climate change everywhere. All this year and right now. Donald Trump, climate denial may not have caused these fires and record floods and record hurricanes. But if he gets a second term, these hellish events will continue to become more common, more devastating, and more deadly. No! Wildfires are burning the suburbs in the West. Floods are wiping out suburban neighborhoods in the Midwest. Hurricanes are imperiling suburban life along our coast. If we have four more years of Trump's climate denial, how many suburbs will be burned in wildfires? How many suburban neighborhoods will have been flooded out? How many, Joe? How many suburbs will have been blown away in superstorms? Hallelujah! If you give a climate arsonist four more years in the White House, why would anyone be surprised if we have more America blaze? If you give a climate denier four more years in the White House, why would anyone be surprised when more of America is underwater? We need a president who respects science, who understands that the damage from climate change is already here. So, I don't know if you caught this, but the reason that I switched back is because I thought that the clip had ended. And the reason that I did is because Joe Biden is basically a walking corpse at this point. And whenever he does a pause, watch him. And, and this is because I've, I've been a speaker for a really long time. When he does a pause in his speech, like a pause for effect, he is so still, it looks like the video is frozen. So he'll be talking like this and then he'll go for a pause. And you can't tell that the video is still going on because he's basically dead at this point and he's not moving at all. <laughs> oh, man. But... Everybody is focusing on the climate arsonist part of that, and I understand why. It's funny, it's goofy, it's dramatic. But I actually want to focus on the other stuff. But before we do, I'm going to just explain one. To be fair, and I understand why people are focusing on it, Trump did want to nuke a hurricane. So maybe at least in that one sense, he is a climate change arsonist. I like Trump's idea of nuking the hurricane. If nothing else, it would blow off some steam for us. <laughs> let, let, let's nuke Sally. Uh, apologies for any of you whose name is Sally. I'm talking about the hurricane. Anyway, uh, YouTube is probably going to kick me off of YouTube for that, saying that I was threatening all women named Sally or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> the whole idea of Joe Biden calling somebody a climate arsonist 
Granted, that is pretty darn rich, considering that he's been running cover for Arsonist for the past several days, ever since, well, about a week now, ever since he came out and tried to, and offered his denouncement of violence, which was really just a denouncement of violence as a whole. He never specifically named Antifa or Black Lives Matter, or if you watch that speech, you would think, based on what he said, because the only groups he named by name were Trump supporters and right-wing militias. That was it. So apparently it's it's a bunch of MAGA hat-wearing people that are burning down Portland and Seattle and New York and Rochester and Kenosha and all these other cities around the country. <laughs> but nonetheless, getting off of that, it's hilarious that a guy that is actually supporting and people inside his campaign, by the way, egged on by his VP candidate Kamala Harris, are actually bailing arsonists out of jail so that they can presumably go out and commit more arson. And he's calling Donald Trump a climate change arsonist. Yeah, if I were Joe, I wouldn't bring up arsonist right now, especially since your campaign is, is seen as supporting them and being okay with rioting and looting and arson. It's kind of like, you know, it, it, there's a certain thing that if you have a perception in politics, whether it's real or not, you don't bring up things that will remind other people of that thing. So uh, uh, just one quick example of this. If you were, for example, Bill Clinton, it would have been a really bad look for Bill Clinton to talk about somebody lying about something that they did while in the Oval Office. I remember that there were speeches actually afterward where he was talking about commenting on things that George W. Bush did or uh, Donald Trump did, talking about how frequently they lie. I'm like, yeah, since you're most famous for having sex in the Oval Office and then lying about it, probably lying, specifically lying about sex, which he, he kind of got caught in. Uh, there was It was real hard for him to, to take him uh, being real angry at President Trump about lying about sex. Still not okay, still not condoning it. I'm just saying Bill Clinton is not the right messenger for ridiculing somebody on that. Same thing with Joe Biden. You, you don't want to remind people that may be on the fence about voting or you. You don't want arson conjured up in their mind when, you know, that visualization obviously brings forth what's going on in the news right now, which Joe Biden is perceived as being supportive of for good reason. So that part of it, there's a pretty thick irony there. But the more important part of that is actually all the stuff surrounding the arson analogy. Because the arson analogy and Joe Biden making it, yeah, that's pretty funny. But actually all the stuff around it is more important because you, you remember that I actually yelled out hallelujah in a joking, mocking kind of tone. And the reason that I was saying that is because Joe Biden gets his dander up. He starts talking somewhat like a minister and he does so using apocalyptic language. I mean, you look through that clip, listen to everything he was talking about. He was saying suburbs are going to be burning and there's going to be American cities underwater and the, the moon will turn to blood and the mountains will melt and the sky will fall. The stars will not give their light. That's basically what it sounded like when Joe Biden was talking. He sounded like an Old Testament prophet trying to give out that sort of mentality and it will all be caused by Donald Trump being reelected to be in there for four more years. This is the epitome of what we were talking about last week. Remember where we were discussing the mask being sort of a, a political totem, a religious totem for those on the political left. 
that it became something that they were kind of trying to project to other people where they stand and, and what their opinion is on it more so than it actually being effective. And if I, I just believe hard enough in science and I, I believe the stats and the numbers and I, I do all of these things exactly right, then I will be protected mystically. There will be a, a magical hedge about me that will protect me from the virus. This is another version of exactly the same thing. In fact, until this virus, the most common use of or the, the most common examples of scientism took place in those in the climate change crowd. And so this is sort of a callback to that sort of thing. Because you'll listen to what he was saying there. He's saying that the reason that all of this is happening is because, and, and this is a direct quote from what Joe Biden said, it's the fury of climate change. That's what we're experiencing, the fury of climate change, as though climate change is a deity that is angry with us for not behaving in a way that the climate change God would deem worthy. That's what it sounds like. And then he goes into a spiel about the reason that we are seeing this is because of Donald Trump and he is a climate change denier. In other words, he is a heretic, a non-believer in the God of climate change. Therefore, the climate change God has become angry with us and has now punished us divinely through these cataclysmic weather events. This is straight up religious rhetoric. And I know I'm a minister. This is something that it has religious zeal and weight. This is what Joe Biden is trying to convey here. And I don't know that Joe Biden wrote this speech. Frankly, based on Joe Biden's behavior of late, I severely doubt that. But nonetheless, this is the way that Joe Biden has chosen to portray himself. And it's probably being done by his handlers and his speechwriters. I doubt that he wrote that. But there are people in Joe Biden's camp that do believe this stuff. This is written like a warning saying that Donald Trump, you know, even if he's not the cause for it right now, if we have four more years of President Trump, you're going to have these cataclysmic weather events because the climate change gods will be mad at us. That's what they're saying here. If you just believe hard enough in climate change, instead of having a non-believer in the White House, then all of these things will be cleansed and will be okay. We, we need a true believer in climate change in the White House. That's what Joe Biden is saying. This is a microcosm for why Trump makes the left so crazy. If you wonder why the Trump derangement syndrome is so bad, because believe me, I was not a fan of President Barack Obama. And I went overboard sometimes in my criticism of him because of how much I disliked the guy. I get that I have personal bias, too, and it plays into it. But even though there were a handful of conservatives that I, th took, I thought took it way too seriously, the vast majority of them didn't. The vast majority of them just went about their lives, and yeah, they didn't like the guy in the White House, and they didn't like the fact that the economic recovery was taking so long, and they didn't like the fact that he was constantly going on apology tours and Obamacare and all the other stuff that happened. But... As crazy as that made us, it was nothing compared to Trump, Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, Trump derangement syndrome is a thousand times worse than that. If you want to know why, it's that people that are conservative, we see government as something that's important, but it's not the most important thing. To a liberal, to somebody that is a, an actual progressive or a socialist, Government is the most important thing. 
because their god is socialism and the church of socialism is government. Government is the way that the will of socialism is enacted here on earth. I'm telling you, socialism is a secular religion. It is, I mean, it doesn't have religion in the sense that, well, it does have mysticism, actually. But in all of the classical ideas of what a religion is, they've got all of it. And this is going back to that. This is sort of the idea of scientism, because instead of science being a, a method and something that we can study and observe, and sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong, sometimes it has to be adjusted, uh, scientism is this magical, perfect MacGuffin that can always solve our problems if we just believe in it hard enough. That's not how this works. The idea that any president holding office for four more years could cause some kind of earth-shattering cataclysmic event or that electing somebody else would prevent said cataclysmic events is so absurd, I don't even know where to start on it. Because when you're talking about even the most hardcore believers in the climate change apocalypse saying, well, if we do all these things, then it might cause a the temperature to go up 0.4 degrees Celsius less in the span of 100 years than it would otherwise. Well, electing one president of one country is not going to change that. Not one iota. Now, you could say, again, if you were a believer in the, the climate change nonsense, if you were a believer in, in all of that, and, and some of it's legitimate, most of it's not. But even if you were 100% a climate change alarmist that believed this is going to cause the world to end, even their scientists are saying that it would have to take place over every single country, and it would have to take place over the next 100 years. President Trump being elected is not going to cause cataclysmic events, and having Joe Biden in the White House, or you know, more realistically, Kamala Harris that would not do anything to stop these events if they are already in motion. There is nothing that any president could do, even if they completely eliminated fossil fuels for the next four years. We, we had no electricity, no power, no cars, nothing. We used no energy. We were completely green. We, uh, we emitted zero carbon emissions for the next four years. Still wouldn't have a big enough impact to change the weather in such a short amount of time, even according to their own scientists. It's a process that would take decades not election cycles. And so it's so absurd that they have bought into this god of collectivism and they worship at the altar of government because to them, that is the ultimate. And that's why Trump drives them so crazy. Let's say you were a Catholic. Let's say you were a Catholic and all of a sudden the next person that becomes Pope, the leader of your church, is a man that is a ardent, radical militant atheist that hates Catholicism, thinks that it's wrong, thinks that it's stupid, thinks that the Catholic Church has been really more of a force for evil in the world than it has been for good, that'd drive you crazy, wouldn't it? I mean, you would absolutely be pulling your hair out thinking, how on earth could this man be the Pope? How could this be the guy leading the Catholic Church? It doesn't make any sense. Let, let's say you're a, a some kind of Protestant. Because in, in most Protestant denominations, at least the ones that I've had some connection with, which granted is limited, uh, in most of the Protestant denominations that I've had interactions with, they kind of think of the, the pastor as being the leader of the church. 
So let's say that your your local pastor even, or or maybe if you're uh, one of the more organized religions like uh, uh, Epi- Episcopal or Methodist, you know, one of those that actually does have some kind of superstructure, that the leader of your church was somebody that didn't believe in the tenets of your denomination, was an atheist, didn't believe in God, didn't believe in Christ, that would drive you absolutely up a wall to think that that person is sitting in that, po- uh, sitting in that post. That's what Trump is to these people. He is a heretic that doesn't like government, that thinks that it's primarily been a force that gets in people's way and causes more problems than it causes solutions. And that's the guy running the government right now. And to them, government is the church. And to them, collectivism and socialism is their god. Ergo, if that's the person that is in charge of their church, that's why it drives them absolutely over the wall. That's why they can't stand it. To them, it does have religious importance because they believe in collective salvation and heaven here on earth. And so this is the person that is preventing them from going to heaven because he's have the, the heaven utopia, the, you know, the, basically the song Imagine by John Lennon. That's uh, John Lennon. I said Lennon. Uh, John Lennon. That's their idea of what heaven is supposed to be. And the only guy that is preventing them from doing that is Donald Trump because he is the head of their church and he's not believing in climate change, which is the reason that he has angered the climate change gods. And now all of these horrible things are taking place. You see how that would drive somebody just absolutely up a wall? That's why the Trump derangement syndrome is having such an effect on them. So, essentially, the only commentary I have on this, because somebody that believes all that, they're so far gone that if they hear that, they're going to completely dismiss it. The reason that I'm telling you this is you need to be aware of this. Don't think of them as a rival political party. Don't think of them as somebody that's on... Now, there are good Democrats that don't believe in all this stuff, that don't treat government like it's the most important thing in the world. Yes, those people exist. I understand that. I'm talking about a leftist, somebody that is so bought into the idea of socialism, collectivism, Marxism. They're too far gone, and those those people, if they heard this, they would completely dismiss it. But guys, it can happen to the right, too. And there are people on the right that treat things that are not God as though they are their deity. There are people that can treat the Declaration of Independence or America itself or the Constitution as though it is a deity. It is not. And so I'm saying this to caution you from falling into the same trap of idolatry. It is not something that the right is immune to. They got that far down the road. They got as bad as they are, and they are bad. They got into that kind of heresy and that kind of idolatry, and they are so far gone because they were not watching themselves. Because they were not on the watch for falling into this trap. So we have to be vigilant to make sure that we don't fall into the same problem. Remember to keep God in his proper place, church in its proper place, and government also in an important place, but not the place of the church or God. It's not the same thing. I want to win elections too. I want the policies that I believe are right to be invoked because I believe they'll genuinely help people and make the country a better place. But if they don't, I'm going to be disappointed. Not going to like it. But you know what? It's still not the most important thing. God is in control of this. He is the one that is watching over us. And no matter what policy proposals put in place, my spiritual destination is assured. So, 
you know, as much as I want to win elections and, and want to have the kind of government that I think America deserves, if I don't get it, I'm fine with that. Because I know that the more important thing, my relationship with God and the church, that that is correct. It's really sad to think that there are people that the government is as high as they can go. And that's why they get so crazy when they see it going in a direction that they don't like. So let's go ahead and get into the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. The Chaplain's Report today is going to be continuing our series in 1 Samuel. And primarily what you need to know about this passage is it's directly after the one that we just covered. So David has come to camp. He has seen Goliath. He has seen Goliath out there taunting and making fun of Israel, making fun of Israel's land, Israel's people, Israel's army, Israel's God. He is out there taunting Israel and, and daring anyone to come up to stop him. And he has essentially cowered the entire Israeli army into backing down and, and refusing to challenge him because of how scared they are of this giant. And that's where we, we come into this story right now in 1 Samuel 17, verses 28 through 30, where he says, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come, uh, come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. So you'll remember the passage directly before this. All Samuel says is, uh, who's this Philistine that is defying the armies of God and why has nobody gone to challenge him? That's essentially all he said. And Eliab, his oldest brother, says, uh, um, who are you to be asking these questions? Who are you to be saying this? And why aren't you off in the field tending your sheep? Head, head back to take care of the sheep. You know, you're an insolent little brother. I know that you're doing this because you don't have good intentions. You just snuck down here to watch the battle and now you're here to criticize us. Really? Like you've been doing something all that important. You need to head back to the fields and, and hang out with your sheep. Eliab, I'm sure was probably a pretty good big brother, but right now he's not. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, there are two possible reactions to what David said in the last passage that we looked at last week. One reaction is the one that, uh, you know, would be ideal. All the other men sitting around see this young boy, probably 13, 14-ish, something like that. They see this young man come up and ask these questions. Uh, why does this guy think that he can just defy God and get away with it? And why has nobody gone out to correct him? Why has nobody gone out to challenge this man? See, what should have happened in that moment is that all the, all the soldiers that are much bigger and stronger than him and more trained in combat start looking at one another and going, you know, he's got a point. 
And if this kid has the courage to say something like that, then why haven't we gone up and fought Goliath? That's what should have happened. It's not. Because fear had set into this army so completely that they were not going to go out and defy Goliath even if God was on their side. In their mind, that was not a fair matchup. Them plus God versus Goliath. Goliath, there was a good chance, was going to win that fight in their own mind. Ridiculous as that sounds when you say it like that. And so, they opted for the second reaction. The worst reaction. Which is that they all start looking around at one another and then start immediately accusing David of doing something wrong. Instead of examining themselves, looking inwardly and going, you know, we are soldiers that are representing God's people. Why haven't we gone out and challenged him? They start attacking the messenger because they don't like what he's saying. They don't like what his words have revealed inside themselves. That he has shown them in there to be cowards that do not have enough faith in God to go out and defend God's name against this person that is blaspheming the living God. And because they don't like what that says about them and their character, they start attacking David's character. It's the, unfortunately, it's his oldest time itself. One of the very first instinct. In fact, it is the first instinct. The first time that God examined man was in the Garden of Eden. When Adam partook of the fruit, and he said, Adam, did you partake of the fruit? He says, oh yeah, this woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate that. Hmm. First thing he did was start blaming somebody else. The second that he was being examined by God, and that examination didn't go well, it showed a shortcoming in Adam, a character flaw, something that Adam was not proud of. The first thing he did is start talking about how bad somebody else was. Exactly the same thing happens with Eliab. Eliab all of a sudden is revealed to be a coward. A character flaw has been revealed amongst these men, and they start attacking David. They start saying, oh yeah, well your character, that's, that's how they react to it. And we laugh at it, but it's such a human thing to do. We do this all the time. Whether it's a friend, or a, a spouse, or a brother, or whatever it is, all of a sudden when people start casting stones, instead of our first reaction being what it ought to be, which is, well, maybe they've got a point. Maybe I do need to reevaluate some things and maybe I need to start acting better. Maybe I need to start doing the things that I'm supposed to do. What usually happens is we wind up lashing out. We wind up retaliating. We wind up attacking that person instead of doing some internal examination. They got defensive. And that was their mistake. So now the question is, how did they get defensive? We already talked about them attacking David's character, so that's one way. The second way is they accused him of being irresponsible. David has pointed out that they are acting irresponsibly. They are not doing their job as soldiers and representatives of God's people. And so they counter with saying, no, David, you're irresponsible. You left the sheep to fend for themselves in the wilderness. Now, actually, we know from several verses beforehand that there was somebody else, a substitute, sitting in and watching his father's flocks. And so he did not leave his position. He left somebody responsible and trustworthy in his position to do that while he went out to do something else for a little while. But they start attacking his own responsibility. They start accusing him of not doing what he's supposed to do. And so they're just trying to reflect the same attack that he just lobbed at them back at them. And then finally, the third thing, they attacked his intentions. What Eliab says is not only are you not doing what you're supposed to do, 
I know the reason that you did what you weren't supposed to do. I know that you really just wanted to come down and see the battle, that you're just here because you're slacking off and not doing what you need to do and ignoring your responsibilities. And so it wasn't even just a happenstance that you happened to come down here and notice, and it's not even that you were just wrong. Your whole intention, the reason that you are here, is tainted. That's what he is suggesting. And so it's a three-pronged attack against David and who he is. And then David points out somewhat hilariously, he's like, uh, all I did was ask a question. I'm getting all of this vitriol and this bile coming back from you because you don't like what that question revealed about you. But you didn't answer my question. All you did is start attacking me. Believe me, as somebody who deals in the political realm on a daily basis, this is more often than not the response that you will get. I, I could play just from this week alone, probably a dozen or more clips of somebody from one side of the aisle accusing somebody of the other side of the aisle when they ask them a question. It happened with somebody that was a representative of Joe Biden's the other day where they were asking him something, uh, what was it, about the, um, will you specifically um, denounce the, the what's going on with BLM and Antifa? And they completely dodged the question and said, well, you're just getting talking points from the right and all this other craziness. They never actually answered the question. All they did was start accusing the other person exactly like what happens here. And by the way, Happens on the other side, too. Not making that a, you know, a political thing, I'm just using it as an example. There are people all the time on the right that when someone on the left asks a question they don't like, they immediately start attacking the other person or you know, putting out a red herring that has nothing to do with it. That's what Eliab is doing right here. And all David is saying, whoa now, all I did was ask a question. You're the one that started getting defensive, which is an indication that there was something wrong with the people and how they were behaving. And all of that is fine and well and good. And of course, we know the end of this story. We know that it all winds up working out for David, that it was actually David that showed courage and not the other men. But let's put all that aside for a second. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us when we start getting questions we don't like? How do we react? Do we think of it as a, a time to do some self-reflection? To look at ourselves and go, yeah, maybe there's some things I'm not doing right. Maybe there's some things I need to work on. Maybe there are some things in my life that I need to do some course correction on. Or do, when that question reveals something in our own mind that we know is not flattering, start lashing out at the messenger, lashing out at the person, the question it. Because to be honest, the vast majority of the people that aren't believers, that are atheists, that have seen the scripture, they know what the scripture says, but have rejected it, nine times out of ten, that's the reason. They're having exactly the same reaction that Eliab had to David. Because the, the scripture, it's not about making us feel good. It's not about the prosperity gospel. It does challenge us, which means that it challenges us to ask very, very difficult questions of ourselves that it tells us things that we have to ask, do I really love my enemy? Am I reacting in a way that Jesus would approve to people even when they don't treat me well? Am I really sacrificing on a daily basis things to help improve the kingdom? Am I really spreading the gospel of Jesus? Am I 
really living a sin-free lifestyle? Am I turning away from evil and clinging to that which is good? I mean, I could go all night about these different questions that the Bible requires of those that adhere to it. Ask. But there's a lot of people that as soon as they hear that question, they think, well, there must be something wrong with the Bible. There must be something wrong with God. The whole thing must be corrupt. It must be evil. It must not be reliable. There's a thousand different excuses. But 90, I would say 90, probably 99% of the time, when somebody does that rejection, it's because the Bible asked a question that they didn't like. Because it required something of them that they did not want to admit to. Sometimes it's just that people don't want to give something up. And most of the time, that's because the Bible pointed out an immorality that they have in their life. Or maybe not even necessarily an immorality, just something that is a moral teaching that is good that they aren't doing. Sort of a sin of omission. And that makes them feel self-conscious. It gives them some cognitive dissonance, and they want to toss that away and say that there's something wrong with that question being asked rather than answer the question themselves. If we are living the way that Jesus Christ taught us to, we will not be afraid of questions. Think about it this way. Was there ever a question that Jesus was afraid of anywhere in the gospel? No, there is not. There are some who refused to answer because they were bad questions, but there was never one that he was afraid of. And there's only one question I can even think of that he didn't answer, and he answered it by pointing out their own problems. Because it was the intent behind the question, not the question itself. But if we are living the way that we're supposed to, we shouldn't be afraid of questions. We shouldn't be afraid of self-examination. Even when it turns out that there are things in our life that are unflattering, that's something that we should actually be thankful for because it teaches us to live more like God wants us to. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.